I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. How are you doing? I'm fine. I just feel like it should be the other way around this week. Like you should be in Tel Aviv and I should be in London or the whole thing should be. It's just the world is upside down. They're like, it's freezing cold here. It's like 10 degrees outside. It's raining and it's gray. I didn't sign up for this stuff. And you're like, it's like a sunshiny day over there in London. I know. I don't want to rub it in, but it is actually properly sunny here. And <laughs> still, you know, there's still a little bit of a chill in the air by your standards. It's not quite flip-flops weather, but I have looked at my shorts. I'm not saying I've put them on, but I've looked at them and I thought they're there. And that didn't seem plausible before. The sun is shining, the sky is blue. And, you know, it's a strange set of feelings because on one level, and this is partly personal because as we have discussed many times, we are both emerging from having had COVID, that includes me, and emerging, in my case, for two years working on this book that I've been working on very intensely. So all of this has come together where I feel I'm emerging into springtime and back into the world and into life. And yet, uh, there's a slightly guilty feeling. I don't know whether the other Londoners or Brits are having it, but I I feel just slightly guilty sort of enjoying the sunshine and feeling as if spring is here when there is a war in Europe. And so, you know, the weather is lovely, but the sort of clouds are gathering in the sense of war in Europe. So there's a, there's a there's a pang there of something like conscience as you otherwise feel as if we're shaking off the woes of winter. So you're not enjoying yourself completely. Well, I'm sort of, a, you know, I, you know, there's a, there's a, maybe it's a Jewish thing. There's a something, a little pang in the back of my mind that just makes me think I can't completely feel like I'm casting off the cares of the world because the world has a lot of cares. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. in terms of emerging back into life, uh, and again, I'm aware this is partly personal rather than just the whole society. I'm not reading across. I'm not that narcissistic that I think because it's <laughs> me, it's everyone. But I, 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 you know, London, one of its big exports is theatre, as you know. During lockdown, obviously, they were all dark and then bit by bit, one by one, they started opening. But they're more, more or less all back in business. And last night I went to see a new play, and it's the new play by David Hare, uh, whose play is always... If I wasn't jealous enough of weather, now you're telling me about the plays. Yes, continue, please. I know, because you're one of those Israelis who comes (laughs) to London because loving to go to the plays and the theatre. I know, it's awful. I'm rubbing it in. Um, It's called Straight Line Crazy, and it's by David Hare. Brand new play by him. Stars Ray Fiennes as Robert Moses, who was immortalised as the power broker in Robert Caro's Mm -hmm. 1,300-page, you know, biography, masterpiece. And it's, I think it's really, really good. And I'm still thinking about it. It just, you know, you don't have to be interested in urban planning, which is the unlikely subject of the play, to find it really riveting because it just gets into these really big political questions about democracy and whether, you know, sometimes people need to have something done for them, for their own good, even when they oppose it. Mm. Uh, You know, is the true Democrat the person who listens to the people or is the true Democrat the person who does what the people want, even if they don't yet know if they want that they want (laughs) it? And that's what the play is about. And it goes back and forth. Ray Fiennes is amazing. Uh, Actor called Danny Webb plays former New York Governor Al Smith brilliantly. And it's just a bit, you know, exhilarating. And then walked walked home in the warm evening and just thought, okay, things are back. And yet, you know, you put the news back on as soon as you go through the front door and it's Ukraine. So mixed mixed feelings, bittersweet feelings, but, you know, spring is coming. Here it is easier, by the way, because it's just raining all the time. And I just, while you were talking, I just remembered that the song, Why Does It Always Rain On Me? 
the Travis song, oh, yes. the Scottish band. It was written when their lead singer was in Elat. He escaped Glasgow because it was raining. It rained for him on, for a week in Elat and the southern uh, sunshine city in Israel. And it was this rare week in which it rained here. And then he wrote the song. I'm just saying, just saying it's the that song of the week. That is great. That is great <laughs> for pop trivia. I never knew any of that. That's amazing. And I know, I lo- I know and I like the I'm song. I'm just going to say, you're going to show off with your David Hare and Robert Caro. And I'm going to show off with Travis. That's what's going to happen in this podcast. This is the... That's, I think that's a good... <laughs> we've, we've got full cultural spread. But I did not know that was about Elat. And you can imagine why you would feel that. Like the one reason you'd go to Elat, all due yep. respect to that fine city, is guaranteed sunshine and to go there and for it to... But this must be very discombobulating for Israelis because you are used to blue sky and sunshine. Exactly. So people In March. Think, do, like, um, this may be me being a bit theatre-ish, and I know you're an expert on Elizabethan theatre, but do people as the elizabethans would think this is somehow an omen that this Mm. is a sign in israel that the weather isn't good do people feel this is divine disapproval do they feel it's a sign of trouble i'm just working off my tudor Mm. history just don't close down all the theaters again because there's a plague um the first thing i kind of asked our meteorologist was wait a minute is this like the earth going crazy is this another indication they said that the last time there was this kind of cold uh, in Israel was in 1910. And then before that, like 1886 and 1894. So it was a phenomenon a long time ago. It's it kind of is a bizarre thing now. They don't know what it's related to. But thank you for giving me some new concerns that maybe this is an omen for, you know, <laughs> pretending doom that's uh, that's going to come. I'm, I'm very glad well, about that. Well, ju- you know, I just put it out there. I mean, Tom Friedman of the New York Times wrote a book about climate change, and he said the best way of thinking about it is not global warming, but global weirding, mm-hmm. meaning weird things happen to the climate. So Israel being cold in March, I think you can put that under the pretty, heading of climate pretty change. Weird. Pretty weird? Pretty weird? It's weird. It's weird. Um, like I say, though, I have been feeling unable to fully dive into all this stuff because in my head I keep on going back to Ukraine and what's going on there and feeling as if we can't just pretend normal life is going on even if in our cities it is because those cities are getting pounded and bombed but he's on his tour isn't he Volodymyr Zelensky of world parliaments and he obviously Mm -hmm. came here I think pretty well first to the to Westminster he's spoken to Congress I thought it was really interesting that he spoke uh in to the Knesset, and mm-hmm. I mean, you would have, you know, covered it and heard it. Tell, I mean, what do you think? Well, look, I mean, as you said, he came, uh, he spoke to the Israeli Knesset after making similar pleas to, as you said, the British lawmakers and American and German and Canadian. It was a very short speech, less than 10 minutes long. I have to say that it was kind of a Jewish speech in the sense that he said to us what he said to, uh, it was tailor-made for every country, but it was the sense of it was still, you're not doing enough to help us. Um, Now, I want to read to you, Jonathan, two lines. One is, I think, the more important thing that he said to Israelis. The other is what made headlines here. He said essentially this, uh, you can definitely help us protect our lives, the lives of Ukrainians and lives of Ukrainian Jews. One can keep asking why we can't get weapons from you or why Israel has not imposed strong sanctions against Russia, why it does not put pressure on Russian businesses. It is up to you, dear brothers and sisters, to choose the answer and you will have to live with this answer, people of Israel. I think that is the heart of what he came to say, which is you can do more and you're not. 
What obviously made a lot of headlines here was a different line in his speech. He spoke about the fact that uh, Vladimir uh, Putin was talking about the final solution. Um, and he says, this is why I have the right to this parallel and to this comparison, our history and your history, our war for survival and World War II, to which uh, many Israeli lawmakers then took to uh, Twitter and said, you know, our hearts are with the Ukrainian people, but this comparison between what is happening in Ukraine and the Holocaust is outrageous. This is essentially what many of the Israeli lawmakers and what many Israelis were saying after the speech. I also think Zelensky knew that and was aware of it. And there was that line which you just referred to and quoted, where he says, I have the right to make this parallel. And so that's somebody who knows that this is going to be controversial. He's a, He has enough of a Jewish sensibility to know that people take umbrage very quickly at parallels between current events and the Holocaust. And he goes into it with eyes wide open saying, mm -hmm. no, no, I have the right. He doesn't say I have the right as a Jew, incidentally. He has says kind of I have the, although that's implied, I thought, mm -hmm. but I have the right because our situation as Ukrainians is different. It was very artfully constructed because he's also saying the reason why they're parallel is for reasons that flatter you, Israel, and your Zionist narrative. He says they're parallel because we're similar peoples for all the reasons Zionism would be very comfortable with, meaning that we are a, you know, a, now a scattered people who mm -hmm. have the right to our own homeland. We're the victims of an attempt to erase us, etc. So I thought it's just, yeah, I just, there was a degree of self-awareness there, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, but by the way, another thing that infuriated some Israelis was the end of the speech saying, Ukrainians have made their choice 80 years ago. They rescued Jews. People of Israel, now you have such choice. So uh, we talked about that a little bit in the previous episodes. Look, I would say, first of all, before even reacting to the speech, uh, what I would, if I could give uh, advice to any Israeli lawmaker running to rushing to Twitter and commenting, I would just say, first of all, cut this guy some slack. Okay, he's fighting right. for the for the existence of his country. He's fighting for himself. He doesn't know if in a month from now Ukraine will still exist, and he doesn't know if he will still exist for that matter. Absolutely. So whatever you know upsets you in the wording, in the comparison, in the commas, or in the you know just take a breath. That is the first thing I would say. It's obvious also, and it, it wasn't coincidence that I brought you what I thought was the heart of the uh, speech and what got a lot of attention and focus. It's not the same thing. I think they, some of the Israeli lawmakers tried to deflect a little bit of the blame and say, forget, let's not talk about this issue, which is important and probably the most important for Zelensky himself. Let's talk about the comparison he made. And that, that really got a lot of of headlines here. I'm just saying, if you want to feel the room and if you want to talk to an Israeli audience, I think probably the right way to do it would um, would talk about, to focus more on, look, our, our country is under existential threat. You're a country under existential threat. That is our common thread. I think that would be something that would resonate with Israelis better. Um, but again, this comparison is something that we maybe should talk about a little bit more that, that upset a lot of the, the Israelis. Yeah, I mean, past Israeli leaders have been very quick to invoke that parallel. Um, you know, Menachem Begin, 1981, Iraqis developed the nuclear reactor. Osirak, Israel uh, takes it out, uh, attacks it. Begin made the speech saying afterwards, never again will the Jewish people be vulnerable to a threat from a dictator, etc. You know, we're not going to allow any dictator to have the means to erase the Jewish people. Netanyahu did it a lot. I mean, he would do it in terms of Iran. 
and Iran having a bomb, that that was seen as okay. Here is the Jewish leader of a country that is under bombardment right now and in a way is fighting for its life. Of course, it is not the Holocaust. It isn't trains, it isn't gas chambers, it isn't an eliminationist project to erase a whole people using industrial means. But I think if, you know, if, as you say, cutting some slack, if people are going to use that parallel bracket, we know Israeli politicians do all the time, Mm -hmm. then if anyone is going to, you know, reach for it, it's going to be the leader of a country that has been invaded and is, there is, you know, is clearly the object of an attempt to potentially erase it from the map. So, you know, I think some slack can be cut for him uh, you know i also think it was it, there was a degree of awareness of what he was doing that i think makes it legitimate i think it was interesting too that he said you know there was a very sort of jewish thing there when he said that that line you quoted about you will have to live with this answer people of Israel. i mean that you could satirize that as being a bit of a kind of jewish guilt trip mm-hmm. that he's giving but he's saying you are a people who take history seriously even yeah. the phrase "people of Israel," you know, you will have to live with this answer. You cannot, in you know, there can be mediation between states. Referring to Naftali, Naftali Bennett and his peace shuttle efforts, shuttle diplomacy efforts between Putin and Zelensky, you mediation can be between states, but not between good and evil. Mm-hmm. I think he's there trying to speak to Israel in a kind of Jewish idiom and invoking the parallel of the Shoah is part of that. Yeah, I think I just had to, you know, I, I assume that I would have a <laughs> a more gentle way of describing what you described. But obviously Israelis feel like the fact that Israel exists means that there won't be a second Holocaust. I mean, that's viscerally what to, a second Holocaust uh, to them. This is viscerally what yeah. they, they believe. Um, but they also sort of believe that they're the guardian of the Holocaust memory, right? I mean, it's not a, a coincidence that the most important museum and the most important research, Muzon Yad Vashem, it's not a coincidence that every leader that comes here visits Yad Vashem. So they believe that they're the guardian of the, of the, of the Shoah memory. I think up to this point, that's okay. But as you say, if a politician in Israel uses the Holocaust's memory for their own um, uh, points, then we shouldn't be so upset if other politicians do the same, or we should be upset at this at the Israeli politicians who do it. So it's it can't be it can't be either or. That that's what I mean. The interesting thing is that I think that notion of Israel as custodian of the memory of the mm-hmm. Shoah, and and that is absolutely incarnated by Yad Vashem and its importance, is what Zelensky gets, and is why he wanted to make this speech. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have talked a lot on this podcast about this strange thing he has of making a priority of addressing Israel and Jews. You know, noticeable. He spoke to the Knesset before he spoke to France's, uh, the politi- you know, lawmakers of France. I think that reveals his priorities and the weight he attaches to Israel for the exact reason you've said, which is because he thinks uh, Israel is the guardian of the memory of the Shoah and he wants to invoke that in this case. Uh, Israel is, you know, is a jealous guardian. I mean, it guards it jealously and says, essentially, we can make the comparisons, you can't. Uh, our politicians can say this, you can't. And Zelensky's pushing back against that. Mm-hmm. And, in, you know, again, we've said it before here, in, in doing that, Zelensky's not out on his own. A, Vladimir Putin himself realises how important, how central the Shoah is to this kind of moral architecture of the modern mm-hmm. West. 
And he, that's why he justifies his so-called special operation in the name of denazifying Ukraine. But also, and we, I, I think I've quoted Timothy Snyder, the, you know, the great historian, who says it is the kind of bedrock foundation for the post-1945 world. Everyone gets it. That, and that's why it's up for grabs here. There's an argument going on here really about to whom does the memory of the Shah belong and who can cite its kind of moral power. Mm-hmm. And Zelensky is right in there, stuck in. And that's why I thought it was so telling, like I say, that he said, I have the right to, to make this parallel. He knows it's controversial, but he's mm-hmm. not backing down and he knows it's really, really important mm-hmm. in, in how you win an, an argument in the international arena, even in 2022, nearly 80 years after these events. Yes, and I think what uh, I will add is what we're seeing this this week, and it's interesting, at least in this country and maybe in other countries as well, is that the Ukraine story, which we are now uh, marking a month uh, to the Russian invasion into Ukraine, is slowly becoming a story. It's still the biggest story in the news. It's the dominant story. But the more the prolonged the crisis is, the more you start seeing other stories entering the cycle. And, you know, obviously there was in Israel this week, a story that dominated the news even more, uh, which is the story of the of the terror attack uh, in Beersheba that uh, that happened on on Tuesday and shifted all of our lineup. And you kind of pushed Ukraine down the lineup because of of this thing that happened. Yeah, I mean, it, funnily enough, it goes back to my, that first spasm of guilt I was talking about—that pang <laughs> of guilt. That there's a journalistic equivalent of that guilt, which is mm-hmm. when. The news, you know, you've, you're anchoring the news at the night when you have to suddenly say there's another lead story. You know, in Britain, there's a budget statement by the Chancellor, the Finance Minister, that suddenly was the big dominant news. In America, there's a Supreme Court nomination going mm-hmm. on. For in, in countries that are not being bombed, life is will just go back. And, you know, mm-hmm. plays open in the theatre and politicians do their other stuff. And again, I think Zelensky is aware of this. He knows he's got to keep on having that stuff. But no... The attack uh, that well, will you tell us what more about it? Because the truth is, it hasn't made much news outside Israel. I think partly for the reasons we're talking about. But you know, just um, what more do we know about it? So the story is actually a, a very. It isn't the typecast of a of a, of a terror attack of this uh, of this magnitude. First of all, it is uh, a Bedouin from Khura in the southern part of Israel who came to Beersheba, who killed four Israelis, two men and two women. This the last time there was an attack uh, this deadly against Israelis was five years ago. So this is pretty shocking uh, to Israelis. And also, I have to say, since you know Jonathan, that cameras and security cameras have become so ubiquitous, you get. Basically, every scene, almost every scene from this uh, horrendous uh, terror attack over and over, you see it in all, in all kinds of angles, which makes it very close up and, and shocking. Now, the interesting thing- And do you thing, play that video on your broadcast? No, no. You don't? We do not. And that was one of my sort of staples is fighting against putting the graphic uh, things on the news. You have to remember that in, in this country, children of very young age watch the news. It's a very- sort of prominent show. So I always kind of think of the fact that you don't want these things. And again, it's also, you know, other issues coming into play here. But no, we don't show these on the news. But obviously, social media um, does does its work in this. I think sadly and tragically it does. Um, But so Israelis were shocked by this. But it's, it's also very important to point out the murderer is a Bedouin, an Israeli citizen from Khura. He's not a Palestinian. Even the recent other uh, attacks that we saw in the past month 
There were Palestinians from East Jerusalem who have an Israeli, uh, were Israeli residents. And so you have to notice that unusually, and in comparison to this, the West Bank and Gaza are relatively quiet. This is the way that everyone kind of wants to keep it. Even if you have this terrible incident, everyone, I mean, when I say everyone, I mean Israel, the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, all have the same interest right now, and that is to keep things quiet. It's the month of Ramadan. It's going to meet Pesach in a while, and everyone wants uh, things to quiet down. I get the why Israeli authorities certainly would want to keep it quiet and why mm-hmm. Palestinian authority in Ramallah would want to keep it quiet. Just, just give us the other sort of point of the triangle mm-hmm. from the point of view of Gaza, Hamas. Why is it? Why would do they want quiet right now? Well, because first of all, um, Israel has been... Uh, under Naftali Bennett, the tactic has been to give Palestinians as much benefits as this government can, which means that more and more Gazans are coming into Israel to work. The military is recommending up to 20,000. Um, that means that people can actually make a living, and that is important. That's important also to Hamas. In the West Bank, people want to come in to uh, prayers of the Ramadan Temple Mount. They haven't been able to do it last year because of the war with Gaza. They haven't been able to do it two years ago because of COVID. So they really want to do it now, and Israel wants to uh, allow that. So that means, again, everyone kind of wants things to cool down. It doesn't mean that they will, because things can always spill over. It's Israel. And if I'm channeling my inner Friedland here, then I will have to say that these are all short-term solutions, right, to the problem at hand right now. These are not the long-term solutions that the Israelis and the Palestinians need to be looking at. Sadly, channeling my inner Friedland doesn't mean getting the accent, but that is what you would say if you could, if I'd let you talk and and shut up for a minute. But I'll just add another point that needs to be relevant here, and that is this man was radicalized by ISIS, and this is the Israeli security echelon is saying that the that we're going to see more and more of that, not only in Israel, because ISIS is feeling emboldened after the withdrawal from Afghanistan. They're going to try these things in other places uh, as well. Final point to make, the Bedouins in the southern part of Israel are, of course, the constituency of the Ram Party, uh, the United Arab List. They're part of the coalition. They have been wall-to-wall condemnations. They have condemned this, of course, uh, and this is a situation which finally it feels like the Bedouins are, because they're part of, in a way, part of the coalition, they will receive funding, they will receive or, or, or probably see a better life for themselves. This kind of hits them in a very bad place at a very, very bad time. You know, when you and I spoke about this uh, earlier on in the week, ahead of the, doing the podcast, um, and one of the things we talked about was, well, how is, it, how is this seen around the world? And I had to say, well, from this vantage point, there hasn't been much attention on it. And I think partly because that's, you know, if there is a, a, a room for international news in people's heads, it's only for Ukraine at the moment. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a limited bandwidth and Ukraine kind of takes it all up. But the other uh, piece of, uh, the, of the explanation is actually touches on the things you just said, which is, I think it doesn't fit the immediate narrative. It's not it doesn't fit the, the the kind of archetypal narrative of Palestinian attacker from West Bank or Gaza. Um, instead, it's more complicated, and therefore that enables people to think it's you know it doesn't fit the narrative. Therefore, this is sui generis. It's a one off. It doesn't uh, you know, and there maybe uh, it doesn't therefore portend some kind of trend. What you've just said just then about ISIS actually means, on the contrary. 
it might mm-hmm. portend a very different trend and therefore should really be the object of all the more attention. Um, but as it stands, I think people, there's a terrible, you know, journalistic rule is, you know, two is a coincidence, three is a trend. <laughs> and and when it's one, it kind of just doesn't make at all. People, I think, having heard what you've just said, should really be on the lookout for seeing if, if you know, heaven forbid, there's more of this. And if it does become a trend. But for now, I think newsrooms around the world thought, eh, you know, that's a sort of rogue, one-off, freak incident. We don't yet need to pay attention. I think you've given us a warning of why we probably should. So we uh, move on then to our Mention Chutzpah Awards? I think we should. My Mench is really, I think, uh, I don't think this week could have seen another Mench, to be honest. Like, I don't want to say that my choice is perfect, but it's uh, near near close. Madeleine Albright passed away yesterday. She was 84. She was the first woman Secretary of State of the U.S. She was a really true trailblazer, um, left with her family, was born in Prague, left uh, when the Nazis uh, occupied, and then only discovered very late in life, relatively late in life, uh, that she was actually Jewish, that her family was Jewish, and the whole story. She was, I think it's uh, very safe to say, a true friend of of Israel and a very uh, someone who was very um, invested in trying to uh, solve the Israeli-Palestinian uh, crisis. She uh, was something. She had this charm. She was so intelligent. Um, and I think she was a true feminist, to be honest. The first thing that uh, popped to mind yesterday when I heard um, was a line she said when she was um, trying to help uh, Hillary Clinton in her um, in her bid for the presidency. And she said uh, then uh, these these famous words. Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Now, I remember when she said that, and I remember the impact of it, and it was it was terrific. And in a way, it was sort of unexpected because people had thought of her as, as a diplomat and a kind of older generation, and yet she came out as this, you know, gloves-off feminist. And I think people, you know, loved it. I, I, I was aware of her, partly her role in the Camp David peace process, in the Camp David failed, Camp David summit. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how... You know, that was such a male-dominated effort. Almost all the people in it, and you see this in the documentaries and in the memoirs and things, they were almost all men. But she was there uh, and, you know, she played a role. And in her comments afterwards, the frustration she felt, and she was very disappointed, for example, in Ehud Barak, who she felt had made commitments to do certain uh, actions, take certain steps, and he didn't then do them. And she says it was like, you know, dealing with, I don't want to be patronizing, but dealing with children. And I think sometimes there was a bit of that there, that she was this incredibly focused and sort of can-do woman, and often surrounded by rooms full of men who just couldn't get the job done, you know, Mm -hmm. and were arguing uh, and squabbling. Uh, You know, it's, it's a great tragedy that she wasn't able in that effort to be the broker of some kind of you know Middle East peace, but there is a long list of diplomats who didn't manage to achieve <laughs> that. Uh, but she was, she did play a very you know made a really great contribution, and I think the late in life discovery of her Jewishness and the way that, she, that what that story meant that her parents had you know converted from to Catholicism from Judaism to avoid persecution 
it's just a very real yeah. thing. And to discover yeah. that later in life, I, I think she just spoke about those things with great depth because of that. So a uh, great um, choice. Uh, and, and just to mention, because you um, love slash hate my references to pop culture, I will make two, <laughs> two of love. them. Only love. One is that she had a cameo in Gilmore Girls, which was perfect. That you should. I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. And yeah, the I've other, never seen that. You know the that other I've is I don't know if you remember that one night, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, the creator and the genius behind Hamilton, uh, tweeted a picture of him and Madeleine Albright, and he wrote, "Immigrants, we get the job done," which oh, uh, which perfect. was a lovely which was a lovely um, thing to say. Um, but now it's your turn, and the chutzpah awards are waiting. You yes, uh, chutzpah. I'm afraid is is a local uh, matter. Um, it is our own Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I wonder if he has had more nominees for uh, nominations for the Chutzpah <laughs> Award than any other individual. Let's it's say either he's him or here Netanyahu. N- he's here not for the first and not for the last time in this show. I, on the, in I the agree. Chutzpah no, Award. he he managed to step forward and say um, at a conference of his own party that Ukraine and Brexit were very similar things because the Ukrainian people were showing they had an instinct for freedom. And it was the same instinct when British voters voted to break from the European Union in 2016. (laughs) It was the common instinct, the desire to be free, he said. And it wasn't an off-the-cuff remark. It was in a set-piece speech. Should we just unpack the layers of Putsky? First, first, when voting for Brexit is not the same as, you know, surviving aerial bombardment and the destruction of your cities. 10 million Mm -hmm. refugees and thousands of civilian lives. Second, to compare yourself to the Ukrainians who are desperate to be in the European Union. One of the very first things that Zelensky did under fire was to symbolically sign his application to join the EU. So to compare joining the EU with leaving the EU is just rank chutzpah in my view because of why Zelensky wanted to join the EU, which is he understood It is the structure which has or is designed to prevent war in Europe. And this is why so many Europeans, including particularly Eastern Europeans, were brokenhearted when Britain left the EU because they thought it was a blow to the institution that kept the peace. There are and were hardline Brexiters who used to refer to the EU as the EUSSR. Ho, ho, ho. As if Brussels is comparable to living under you know, Moscow rule in the era of the Soviet Union. That was chutzpah. This was chutzpah. It shows just a really horrible, uh, in my view, uh, crassness and an inability to separate, yes, what was a domestic political issue with a life and death struggle and to try and sort of think that there is any comparison that some of Ukrainians' heroism rubs off on the rather shoddy Brexit project, which has been just bad and awful for this country. I think it's a, it's really, chutzpah is putting it very mildly. Multi-layered so chutzpah. It's really multi-layered chutzpah there. Isn't it? Multi-layered chutzpah. <laughs> so we have a really slam dunk choice for Mensch, but I would say it's a pretty slam dunk choice for chutzpah too. Agreed. But I can't let you go without mentioning something that I just, I saw it and it made me think of you. What can I say? Um, there is, uh, we are recording this on a Thursday, uh, kind of noon-ish, but uh, tonight, if I read this um uh, the letter that I've been sent by my friend, uh, there will be a, a press conference in Houston that will unveil a an ancient tablet that uh, the archaeologists uh, who are behind it think that it is the oldest 
Hebrew inscription from ancient Israel. I must say that uh, this wonderful tablet uh, found in its all curses. <laughs> so probably my first thought it was written by a Jewish mother to her son after he dropped out of medical school and went to be a journalist. But um, more, more likely explanation, more likely explanation was that it had to do with the um, famous part of the uh, book of uh, Deuteronomy when um, the Israelites walk into the Holy Land for the first time. Then uh, Joshua has this uh, altar and it's uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Grizim. And then, you know, he has to make they make them choose between good and evil. And that, that, that's part of that, probably the altar and part of that sign. But out of 23 words in Hebrew and ancient Hebrew, actually Hebrew, <laughs> uh, 10 words are the word cursed. So that, you know, that just makes sense, doesn't it? That that's what it would be. I think that's um, so perfect an episode, of course. <laughs> but I feel as if there was a little personal bit of biography that you sneaked in there that I didn't know. Does that mean you were a medical student before you became a journalist? No, no. I was, there was an, there were expectations, expectations. All of my oh, grand, really? all of my grandparents were uh, doctors. Uh, so uh, okay, just what would you be if you're Jewish when you're born in like 1918? Um, so they were all doctors. There's a certain expectation. I think they're waiting for me to, you know, they were waiting for me to grow up and find a real job. We, my late mother so wanted there to be a doctor <laughs> in our family. And, um, and, you know, I'm afraid the wait goes on desperate for a doctor in the family. It reminds me though, it's an old joke, but, um, the absolute peak of Volodymyr Zelensky's fame in that first week or so when everyone around the world was saying, this is the greatest hero the world has ever seen. People were having you know, to put his face on their T-shirts and talking about statues going up to him. The joke went around, of course, that the interviewer goes up to Volodymyr Zelensky's mother and says, you must be so proud that your son is a world hero, the most admired man in the world. And she, of course, answers, my other son is a doctor. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, I think uh, the search goes on for a Dr. Friedland, but the, we, we can think about the Dr. Levy that could have been, if only you had followed the path um, if you have enjoyed this edition of Unholy, please do rate us or give a review. Spread the word around. Yes, and we shall say our thank yous to Rom Atik and Omer Primat and Irad Eshel for original music and also reveal to our listeners that we were wearing the exact same shirt the whole recording. Next time, we shall coordinate better and we'll meet next time. Yeah, this was uncoordinated, you should say. Explain, <laughs> this was a weird, strange coincidence, but we were both wore, yeah, pretty well the same. <laughs> Crazy random shirt. happenstance. I, next week, I'm, next week I'm wearing green. That's what I'm saying. So you wear something else. <laughs> You've given me advance warning. Cheerio, you need. <laughs> Bye.